Here's what's on the Alan Carter podcast today. Oh, my goodness. Big guest alert. Prof G. Scott Galloway is with us to talk about his new book. It's going to be good. What else do we have? We're going to talk about a church in Kingston, an incredible story you need to hear about. Let's get to it. As we speak, the vaccine is being administered across this country and here in Toronto. So as the vaccine rolls out, it is time to fix our gaze on the horizon and consider what will return to normal and what will be forever changed because of this pandemic. And that is the subject of a new book by my next guest, the book Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity, the author is Scott Galloway, who is a professor of marketing at NYU, a best-selling author, host of the popular podcast Pivot and the Prof G Show, and here he is on my very program. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Alan. Good to be with you. You write in your book uh, that the pandemic is an accelerant, speeding up already existing trends. I'm wondering what segments of the economy do you see changing most profoundly and permanently? I would say the two most or the three most profound changes will be in what is arguably the largest industry in North America, and that is healthcare. In the U.S., 17% of our GDP in, Canada, GDP in Canada, I think it's the low teens. But if you think about it, Alan, 99 plus percent of the people who have contracted and endured and developed antibodies from the novel coronavirus never entered a doctor's office, much less a hospital. So you're talking about trillions of dollars of health care that will be dispersed beyond the traditional forms of distribution into our homes, our smartphones, smart cameras. So that will totally reshuffle or reconfigure what is arguably the largest industry in North America, maybe even the world. And then you're looking at a dispersal or a reshuffling or reconfiguration of commercial real estate where you could get a couple trillion dollars reallocated out of, com- out of commercial that is office and retail real estate into residential. And finally, I think my business education, a $750 billion business in the U.S. will no longer be filtered through campuses, but online. So you're talking about 15 to 25 percent of the economy that will be fundamentally reshaped. So the resistance on the part of universities in Canada and around the world really to say, no, no, you still got to pay the same tuition, even though now you're at home instead of here on this nice leafy campus, that eventually that that will break down? I think it's situational. I think the elite universities, the Ivy Leagues in the U.S. and the Gills, University of Toronto, will double down on their exclusivity. Their positioning is as a luxury brand, and they create sort of artificial scarcity by not increasing their enrollments. And to be blunt, we as academics have kind of become drunk on luxury. I think we sort of lost the script and see ourselves as luxury brands, not as public servants. But I think some of the tier two or the big public universities that really educate the majority of our young people will hopefully embrace small and big tech. And if you think about it, if you just take half your courses online and the dirty secret of most of our courses is you could offer the same level of education with half of it being done online. If you take half online, you effectively double the capacity or the supply with very little incremental increase in cost. And that that offers a huge opportunity to ex, ex, uh, increase admittance rates and also decrease costs. So I think there's a silver lining here that education might return to where it rightfully once was, and that is as a great upward lubricant of the middle class in Canada and the U.S. And unfortunately, now it's kind of headed towards the cap, the kind of the ultimate agent of the caste system in the U.S. and Canada. 
When, when you talk about residential real estate and the money going to residential real estate, I think a lot of us is, you know, have experienced the benefits of being able to work from home, but also the drawbacks, the creativity, the spontaneity of an office environment. Give me a sense of, of your prediction of what the balance or the mix of that will be going forward. You know, that's the correct question, and, and, and I'm not exactly sure, although I do think that if you want to get a group of cohorts together to engage in mutual denial, get office building owners and movie theater owners in the same room, I think people, and they'll tell you that people can't wait to get back to the office. There is a cohort, specifically younger people that find friends and mentors and mates at work, but I think a large portion of Canadians and Americans will either go fully remote or just be much more comfortable working Thursday and Friday at home. And, and their bosses and their colleagues will be comfortable with it too. But you're right, you'll lose a certain amount of that serendipity, that electricity of people bumping off of each other, personal relationships. Unfortunately, I think that probably the biggest losers will be working mothers because if you have the opportunity to move 100 miles from headquarters, and one of you has to give up your job. It's usually, uh, it's usually the woman. Uh, typically, the woman bears a greater share of the burden at the house, so she will most likely work remote. And there's just no getting around it. Proximity is a function of relationships and promotions, and the people who can afford or who have decided to go into the office every day are more likely to see their careers and their salaries escalate. So I wonder if, I wonder if this will actually be a step backward in terms of women closing the wage gap. But there'll be a ton of unintended consequences here, but I think we're finding that a lot of productivity has actually gone up when we take out commuting, when we take out getting ready for work. Some people are getting five to 10 hours a week back, getting a day back by not commuting into work. It's going to be situational, huge unintended consequences. You know, I I noticed that you you write in your book about the inequities that the pandemic is really laying bare. And I I noticed an opinion piece in the New York Times today talking about, you know, all the benefits that, you know, certain segments of the population are enjoying, like flush with cash if you're still working, for example. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what you see as the inequities of the pandemic and, and what it has laid bare? Well, it it is an accelerant. So we had some very underlying kind of dysfunctional attributes of our economies, increasing income inequality, and it's gone from dysfunctional to dystopian. If you make more than $100,000 a year, there's been no change in employment. You're just as likely to have your job uh, post-pandemic or in the midst of the pandemic as pre-pandemic, and there's a 60% likelihood you can work from home. If you make less than $40,000 a year, 40% of those people have had some sort of job interruption and less than 10% can work from home. The the dirty secret of this pandemic, and we don't like to say this out loud, is that if you're in the top 10%, the pandemic for you, if you were fortunate enough that no one you know or a loved one was impacted from a health perspective, but the dirty secret is the top decile of our populations in Canada and the U.S., the pandemic has meant more time with family, more time with Netflix. And by the way, they've never been wealthier. So more wealth, more time with loved ones, more time to focus on uh, relationships. Meanwhile, the other 90% are uh, oftentimes having to put themselves in harm's way, are incredibly financially distressed. So this has been a K-shaped recovery. And much of the stimulus has ended up in the pockets of people who didn't need it, fueling the stock market, reaching all-time highs, real estate reaching all-time highs, and who owns 80 to 90% by dollar volume of residential real estate in the markets? That top 10%. So 
the stimulus was needed, but there's a decent argument that all it did was flatten the, the curve for rich people, and the income inequality in our nation has gone from dysfunctional to dystopian. It has been a best of times and a worst of times, based on, simply put, how much money you have. I'm speaking with Scott Galloway, whose news bo- new book is Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity. And Scott, on your podcast, you talk a lot about uh, DoorDash and Airbnb, and you just mentioned the markets. And I think a lot of us have been looking at the size of those and, and what's happened with those stocks. And a lot of us are thinking, well, is this just like 2000, 1999, 2000 again? Are we in a, a tech bubble that's about to go pop? You know, that's a correct question. And I, so I, I'm confident that the answer is yes. What we're less confident on is when it goes pop. Uh, the Economist, the magazine, perfectly called the dot-com implosion of the dot-bomb dot bubble bursting. The problem is they called it in 1997, and the markets went up 40 to 60% since then. So it's difficult to know when there will be a correction but we have seen um, an acceleration that's been so dramatic. It took Apple 42 years to get to a trillion dollars in value and then just five months from March to August to get to two trillion. Sitting here in March, Tesla was the second most valuable automobile company in the world. Sitting here today, it's not only the most valuable, it's worth numbers two, three, and four. Uh, Toyota, Daimler, and Volkswagen combined and those cars those companies put out a combined 24 million automobiles and tesla put out 400,000. so it appears that the stocks are typically a function of two things narrative and numbers uh, alan it appears that the narrative has totally overwhelmed the numbers and stocks that are perceived as disruptors that will do well moving forward are reaching just unheard of multiples apple's multiple on earnings is 38 it traditionally trades somewhere between 12 and 15. so am i confident there will be a correction, yes. When will it happen? Very hard to know. Scott, you obviously know your numbers, um, but one of the things that it's always strikes me uh, listening to your podcast and your content is when, when you talk about parenting issues, uh, you, you know, being a dad, I'm a father of two, you know, and, and as fathers, we, we just do a terrible job, I think, of communicating with other men. Women do it so much better in terms of talking and sharing in terms, you know, I, I just wondered if you could expand on something that, that you talk about, which is the difference between time and quality time with your kids. Well, I think that one of our many flaws, I think that males, especially um, heterosexual males, um, we see affection and compliments and generosity and outward expressions of admiration as a currency that if we give them to someone else, especially another male, it somehow takes away from our own masculinity or our sense of self. And the reality is the smallest deed, the smallest gesture is much more important than the largest intention. And one of the keys to happiness, and if you ask people, there's been research on this or in palliative care who are towards the end of their life, they wish they had invested more in relationships. They wish that they had expressed more gratitude, more affection, and more admiration. And one of the keys to happiness and one of the probably, I think, the easiest hacks, if you will, especially for men who are not as good at this as women, is when you're thinking good things, when you feel affectionate and grateful for your spouse, when you feel affectionate towards your child, to act on it. And it it doesn't reflect weakness, it reflects strength. And there's an enormous opportunity for, I think, for men to kind of be the man the kids think they are and to 
if you think of yourself as being a generous and loving person, well, that's not enough. You have to actually be generous and loving. And I think the gap between our intentions and who we think we are and our actions is sometimes greater than it should be because of sort of this heteronormative viewpoint that society puts on what it means to be a man. And in terms of spending time with our kids, it's about it's about just being there, isn't it, at the end of the day? I mean, it's it's not about that trip to Disney. Yeah, I think it's a couple things. I think the term quality time is a dangerous one. I think quality time is a term that working dads invented to, to rationalize the fact that they were so focused on their careers, and there's a reason for that, I think. I think all men, and this is this is um, gets pushback, should take economic responsibility for the household. And to be clear, sometimes that means uh, recognizing your spouse or your partner is better at that whole money thing than you, and being more supportive of of his or her efforts. But I, you know, quality time, I don't really think it exists because there's moments of serendipity that creates moments of engagement. And my advice to fathers is not to make the mistake I made and try and encourage moments of engagement solely around the things I'm interested. I'm interested in sports and I'm interested in movies and I expect to bond with my sons over that. And what I found is my sons are interested in different things. And what you want to do is identify moments of engagement and then just kind of run a train through them and really develop them. Even if you, even if they're not things you're interested in, because those are the moments where you look back and think that you've bonded with your son. And I, what I would tell to, tell to every young dad is invest a lot now because you wake up and before you know it, the kid is rolling his eyes and, and, and wants to hang out with his friends and not you. I, I mean, Alan, I, I imagine you have experienced it. It's just going so fast. You, know, you don't get these years back. No, it, it's incredible. And you just all of a sudden have a moment where you're right. And then they're teenagers before you know it. Scott Galloway, the new book is Post-Corona. From Crisis to Opportunity. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Alan. Best to you and yours. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU. He has a number of best-selling books, and he's also the host of the podcast Pivot and the Prof G Show, Post-Corona from Crisis to Opportunity, is out now. And that last bit, man, does that speak to me as a father. Yeah, I know lots of other dads. Some of them are my best friends. Some of my friends are dads. And do we share? Do we talk about, man, this is how, you know, I dealt with whatever this particular situation in terms of being a father. This is how I was present and there. No, we don't. No, we don't. We talk about sports and whatever else. You know what men talk about. They don't talk about their feelings and how to help each other. So here's my ask for you dads out there today. Talk to another dad. Ask him how it's going. How's your family? Don't just say, how's your family is a prelude to, you know, Raps played pretty well last night in that preseason. Don't do it. How's your family? What works for you? Here's the thing that I'm dealing with. You ever deal with anything like that? Do that today. Help another dad be a better father. Bring it on, bring it on. Give me some of that sweet, sweet ice-cold Pfizer vaccine right here. My sleeve is rolled up and I'm ready to go. Yes. You know what I'm going to do today? I am going to ignore the numbers. Straight up ignore them. 
Forget about it. I don't care. I'm not paying attention to the numbers. You know why? Here it is from Christine Elliott. Here is the tweet that Christine Elliott put out this morning. Public Health Ontario has changed their data extraction process and updated their data extraction time to 1 p.m., resulting in a one-time increase in case counts and some variations in results. Okay, I, I don't know what any of that really means, other than a data extraction process seems like it's going to lead a, leave a rash. Like, that does not sound like fun. Well, I don't, what's your data extraction process? But the bottom line is, if you see numbers today and you're like, oh my, you know, you're going to start pulling on your hair and renting at your clothing, gnashing of teeth, all the biblical things, don't do it. Because what do we have today? We have a one-time increase in case counts. Because of a change of the data extraction process. Ow! Ow! That hurt more than the vaccine. So now we got to get the numbers at 1 p.m. instead of 10.30. Is that, that is apparently what that means. So going forward now, uh, 1 p.m. before we get the numbers, before we all wig out about the numbers. And then the DOFO show is back today. No! No! Stop! I just got used to it not being on at 1 o'clock. I was starting to enjoy myself. As you know, the Doug Ford show, regularly at 1 p.m., the premier's office said, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're, we, you know, we're not going to put Doug Ford up there so he can be asked a whole bunch of questions about vaccine rollout and when are we getting the vaccine, when do I get the vaccine, you know, put him up there, and he's not going to have any answers to those questions because there aren't any answers to those questions as of yet, so they're not going to do that. So what instead did the premier's office do? They just every day had another visual of him that they put out. Like, oh, here's Doug Ford looking at freezers. Oh, well, that seems to be chilly in there. And then we had the uh, Doug Ford on the tarmac wearing the reflective vest. Safety first, Dofo Show. And I knew it. I told you, he, you know what? He wasn't going to be able to stay away. I mean, the quote from the premier's office was, well, it doesn't make sense to do that. But now, well, hey, here we are. The Dofo Show is back. Can't stay away. Loves it. Loves the camera. Loves to call out the absolute champions. Now, let's get to it. Here are two bits of news from the Justice Files that you absolutely need to know about today. Let's begin with the first. A sentencing hearing will be had in February for Braden Bushby. He was found guilty yesterday of manslaughter in the death of an indigenous woman in Thunder Bay. Bushby had admitted to throwing a trailer hitch from a moving car at Barbara Kentner in January of 2017, and he had pleaded guilty to assault, but pleaded not guilty to manslaughter in her death. This case, extremely disturbing. Mr. Bushby, some friends, he basically said previously he wanted to go yell at sex workers. And he drove past Barbara Kentner and her sister, and he threw a large metal hitch it hit Miss Kentner, and six months later, she died of her injuries. By the way, neither Miss Kentner nor her sister were sex trade workers or are sex trade workers. They were just out for a walk. Again, Bushby had pleaded not guilty to manslaughter, and now he will be sentenced in February. I want to read for you from Tanya Talaga, who is an award-winning author, of the book Seven Fallen Feathers, 
which is just an absolutely devastating look at race and justice in Thunder Bay. And she writes in the Globe and Mail about this verdict that the charge should have been second-degree murder as it was originally, before it was reduced to manslaughter for reasons I will never understand. And here we get to the crux of the matter as we look at this case and what does it signify and what does it mean in this country as we examine our own past and have a reckoning in this country that is long overdue about the way the justice system and society treats visible minorities, black and indigenous members of our community. And Tanya, Tanya Talaga sums it up this way in the Globe and Mail, and man, did this speak to me. Quote, if you call yourself a Canadian and you have not taken a moment today to think about Barbara Kentner, you have no idea what is really happening in this country. If you do not see how the roots of colonialism still grip the justice system and mindsets of those who work and serve in it, then you are blind to Canada's true and continuing history, and you are part of the problem. This is Tanya Talaga writing in the Globe and Mail. If you have not taken a moment to think about that case. If Barbara Kentner's name, or not even her name, but if she was a white woman walking down the road, do you think you would know her name? You would know it. Her face would be on the front page of every newspaper. We would talk about it. We would have had crews in Thunder Bay 24-7 round the clock. And what did we get instead? Yes, we had coverage, but we don't have the kind of attention to it that I think it needed. I want to thank Tanya for writing that. I think that's important, and I hope that more people think about it. Now, here's the other case that I need you to know about. Because later on today, the family of DeAndre Campbell is expected to protest outside the SIU headquarters. If you were listening to our program yesterday, you know that the Special Investigations Unit, which is the civilian body that oversees the police in this province, came to the conclusion that there was no reason for charges, there was no basis for charges in the death of DeAndre Campbell. Mr. Campbell called Peel Police on April 6 of this year. The 26-year-old suffered from schizophrenia, had mental health issues, had called police in the past. He called police, and police arrived, and when they entered the home, they saw Mr. Campbell, who was in the kitchen, in the process of cooking. Mr. Campbell held up a large knife. The officers shouted at him to drop it immediately fired their tasers. Mr. Campbell was tasered. He fell to the ground. One officer attempted to subdue him. Mr. Campbell continued to fight. One of the officers felt that he was in danger. His life was in danger. His partner's life was in danger. He fired his firearm twice, killing DeAndre Campbell. And today, the family of DeAndre Campbell will be at the SIU. Unfortunately, they're in the wrong spot at the wrong place, because protesting the SIU 
isn't really going to help. Because I've read through that SIU report. I've read it completely top to bottom. And what it says is it makes the case for that there is no basis to be able to charge this officer. But it also points out that the SIU has a narrow mandate to be able to look at things like race relations, the response of police to those who are mentally ill. And even though the police have a program in Peel to be able to send a mental health worker and a plainclothes officer to uh, various mental health calls, just so you know you don't show up with the police with the guns and the stun guns and the tasers and all the rest. But that assessment was not made by dispatch because you know why? Guess who called them? DeAndre Campbell. And DeAndre Campbell was in no <laughs> he was in no place to be able to communicate effectively what needed to happen. So the family of DeAndre Campbell's in the wrong place. You know where they need to be? They need to be outside Doug Ford's office. They need to be outside the office of the Peel Police Department. Because the SIU says, well, we've looked at it, and, you know, there's no basis for criminality. Thank you, and good night. And we end up in this province and in this country with the same thing. An institutional bias. A lack of ability to understand the lived realities of minorities in our society. You cannot look at what happened to DeAndre Campbell or what happened to Ijaz Chowdhury or Regis Korchinski Paquette. You can't look at that or even the Bushby case and the death of Barbara Kentner. You can't look at any of those without understanding that there is a deep and systemic problem in the justice system, in this society, and the first step to making it better. is thinking about it, admitting it, and knowing that it is true. And I echo the call, Tanya Tulaga, if you do not, if you cannot accept that, then you are part of the problem. A big story to tell you about that's going on in Kingston, Ontario. You may not have heard of this one. I want to bring you up to speed on what's going on with Third Day Worship Center, which is a non-denominational Christian church in Kingston, Ontario. More than 10 former members of that church are speaking out, some claiming they were brainwashed, afraid of being cursed if they didn't give the church their time and their money. Former members of this church claim that the organization encouraged submission to the church's ideology and to its founding pastor, Francis Armstrong. For a better idea of what uh, founding pastor Francis Armstrong is all about, here he is, and I will caution listeners about what you're about to hear, but I think it's important. Here is Francis Armstrong preaching about homosexuality. How about the banner of homosexuality that's set up in the church where once, where, where we, where this was never a debatable issue, but now we are debating whether homosexuality is okay. Like the questions, I've been asked this question, can somebody be a homosexual and not practicing and still be a Christian? And the answer is still the same, no. 
homosexuality is an abomination unto God. Are you listening to me? And those that live like that are going to end up in hell. I don't care if they sit in the church, but where are the preachers that are going to stand up and say it? That is Francis Armstrong, the pastor at Third Day Worship Center in Kingston. Armstrong later apologized for the hateful tone of videos like that that have been posted on the Internet. You can read more about this story on globalnews.ca, written by Alexandra Mazur, who joins me now on the line. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. We haven't even got to the coronavirus part of this story yet. Bring me up to speed on that. Yeah, so um, basically uh, a a video compilation leaked earlier this year in September um, showing the pastor preaching that um, the COVID-19 vaccine was uh, basically a ploy for uh, Bill Gates to implant chips into people's bodies. Um, And then, yes, actually last week there was uh, an outbreak at the church. Um, I think it's 24 cases associated to the church now. So, um, yes, it's been a big story here in Kingston for sure. Uh, and the, the church has itself put a statement out. What uh, has the church said in response to this outbreak? Well, Armstrong basically said that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, he was trying to figure things out, and what he shared originally might not have, I think he said it missed the mark, um, but that they've been in compliance with the local public health guidelines ever since. And I have checked with public health, like no no churches have been fined in the area. So, um, so far it seems that's true. But yes, I think it's one of the largest outbreaks in the region. Um, so definitely something significant that happened there. And um, yeah, it just kind of goes along with um, videos that have come out, right? That uh, maybe some things were being taught that shouldn't have been taught, um, but that's for uh, the readers to decide, I guess. Uh, I want to go back to Francis Armstrong uh, and another portion of that video that is posted on your story. Again, you can read the story on globalnews.ca, speaking with Alexander Mazur, his reporter in Global Kingston. Again, here is uh, Francis Armstrong, who is the pastor at Third Day Worship Center, talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. And ironically, in January, I woke up in, in, before all this happened, and the Lord said to me very clearly... Um, the chips coming through the through the, the the flu shot, and I'm like, what? Uh, not knowing a pandemic was going to hit, and there there's again, you've heard it over and over and over and over and over. When we're all, you know, uh, vaccinated, um, not asking if you want to be vaccinated, just telling you when you get vaccinated, and that's the narrative, and has been the narrative from day one. And they're working, you know, all these because it's all about money. They're all working to get the vaccine first, so that they'll make millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, and then a chipping procedure starts. So. Let me just stop and say this. So that's why if we think this is about a virus, uh, then we're only fooling ourselves. That is Francis Armstrong in a video which you can see on globalnews.ca on our story about the church that he heads up, Third Day Worship Center, speaking with Alexander Mazur from Global Kingston. Alexander, what's the connection to the mayor's office here? Yes, so um, actually our mayor, second-term mayor, uh, Brian Patterson, was uh, both a member for 20 years about and then also a leader and a pastor at the church for quite a long time and only really stepped down in September when the first of these videos leaked. Um, now, he says that he has stepped away completely from the church. I do know that you know, his family still goes there, but he also commented to us saying, you know, they're slowly transitioning outside of the church. But yes, um, 
he and and other members in, in or other kind of prominent people in the city go to this church. I think there's about 300 to 500 is the the number that I I have from former members. So um, yes, it's uh, all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life go to this church. It's um, people lead you know normal lives and and um, are everyday Kingstonians, but uh, they have kind of an almost separate life it seems with the church. And again, let's get back to the the outbreak. As you pointed out, there have been no charges from public health. Um, there is is there any evidence at all that you know, despite whatever um, Pastor Armstrong might be saying to his congregation, that any rules were actually broken? Um, again, you know, all I have is uh, uh, what public health says. You know, uh, I do know that um, lots of former members have been emailing public health with you know specific allegations, but none of those. I could corroborate, and all I have is what public health says, and 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 they haven't laid any charges so far. Um, but again, you know, there are 24 cases that are linked to um, the church directly. I, I'm sorry, I think it's 17 to the church directly, and then an additional seven um, that are close contacts. So it's a fair fair number uh, of cases. So I don't know what was going on, but there's definitely an outbreak. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Alexandra, thank you so much for being on the program and bringing us up to date on this story. Very important story. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. That is Alexandra Mazur, who is with the Global Kingston. And again, you can read that story on globalnews.ca. It's Kingston Third Day Worship Center. If you just want to throw that into the old Google machine and see what pops up, that's where it'll be. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget, The Alan Carter Show, weekdays, starting at noon.